Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. The 1800s was an exciting time for Christianity in America. At the same time that secularism and liberal Christianity made huge gains, several renewal movements occurred throughout the land, including the Second Great Awakening. In this episode, you'll learn about the birth of the Protestant missionary movement with the Moravians and the Baptists, how the various Adventist denominations got their start, like the Seventh-day Adventists and the Church of God, Abrahamic Faith, and last of all, the most successful made-in-America religion, Mormonism. These thumbnail sketches will help you understand a number of groups that are still around today. This is Lecture 14 of a History of Christianity class called 500, from Martin Luther to Joel Osteen, and this is podcast episode 130, Missionaries, Adventists, and Mormons. Number 14, Missionaries and Adventists. I should also mention and Mormons, because I'm going to talk about Mormons just a little bit at the end here. To start off, I want to mention the Pietist movement. It started in the late 17th century, and it went on into the 20th century, but it's not with us today, so it makes sense that we've never heard of it, most of us. But this is a movement within Europe in Reformed and Lutheran churches. It didn't start, but it was spearheaded by a man named Philip Jacob Spainer. He lived from 1635 to 1705. There was a need for moral and religious reformation within Lutheranism. So the, Luther had won the day, and Calvin had won the day, but now this is some time later. This is the next century. These believers uh, had become stale, or you know, the whole fighting for the faith and all that had all long since passed. Pietist movement is, is a renewal movement, a revival movement within these churches. And so Spainer starts having meetings at his house where he repeated the sermons, he explained the New Testament, and he st stimulated questions and discussion. Kind of sounds like a home fellowship, doesn't it? In 1675, he came out with the book Pious Desires, and he stressed these six points. The first is that the earnest and thorough study of the Bible should be done in private meetings. So you have your regular Sunday service, but then you have a private meeting where you have further study. Number two, that the laity, the people, the non-clergy, should participate in the government of the church. It should be involved in what happens. Number three, that a knowledge of Christianity must be attended by the practice. So not just knowing, but doing. Number four, a sympathetic and kindly treatment of Christians of other groups, also called heretics. So rather than be mean to them or kill them, we should be sympathetic and kind to them. And he also taught, number five, that universities should give more prominence to the devotional life, not just learning. And number six, that rather than pleasing rhetoric, preaching should implant Christianity in the inner man. So this is the pietist movement of the uh, late 17th century into the 18th, 19th, and early 20th century. Emphasis is on the inner life and conversion. 
But he doesn't, get, he doesn't change the doctrines of the church. He doesn't get rid of baptism or communion or anything like that. But he, he, he focuses that energy in these small groups. They were millennialists, which means they believed in the coming of the kingdom of God on earth when Jesus would reign for a millennium. Uh, Lutherans had traditionally thought that they were already in the millennium and that the church was the millennium. That's called post-millennialism. Just a couple of other things. Pietists believed there were two kinds of Christians. Those who were awakened and who had experienced conversion, and then the unenlightened, who were baptized, because people were baptized as babies in these churches. They, they were baptized, but they were in danger of damnation. The, the idea comes that you need to have this second conversion experience, or actually first, because when you're a baby, let's face it, not much. Conversion happens when they put the water on you. University at Hale in Saxony was established as a center for pietism. This leads me into talking about the Moravians. The Moravians, also called the Unitus Fratrum, descended from the 15th century Hussites. That's Jan Hus right here. He, he was the first person I talked about, uh, Jan Hus, in the uh, Czech Republic. He was before Luther, and he preached a lot of these same ideas and got killed for it, burned at the stake. Well, anyhow, his followers, which are called the Hussites, stayed in the area of Bohemia, what we now call the Czech Republic, and these Moravians are originally his followers. What happened to them is that they were persecuted during the Thirty Years' War in Bohemia, so they came over in the late 17th century to Poland and then in the 18th century to Saxony. And they encountered Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. Definitely the funnest name to say for this whole class. Count Nicholas, Nikolaus Ludwig von Zinzendorf. In 1722, Zinzendorf, who was a pietist that went to school at Hale, uh, he was the godson of Spainer. He gave the Moravians land on his estates, which became the community called Hernhut. Hernhut is this really exciting place where Protestant missionary efforts first began. Now, I had mentioned to you previously about the Jesuits. The Jesuits are doing missionary work in the 1500s from then on. They, they go to South America, they go to Mexico, they go to the central part of the United States, they go to Quebec and France, and they go to China and Japan and India, right? Whereas the Lutherans and the Calvinists, they're just kind of struggling for survival in Europe. It's not until the Moravians in the 1700s that non-Catholics have the thought, I wonder if we should go preach the gospel to all nations and decide to go do something about it. I love this story, so I'm going to tell it to you. It's uh, about the year 1731 when Zinzendorf and some of these Moravians went to the coronation of the king of Denmark. And when they were there, they, they met this man, Antony Ulrich, who had been a slave at St. Thomas, which is one of the Virgin Islands. They told them of the horrible slavery on the island, and it broke Zinzendorf's heart. He got back to Hernhut at two in the morning, and he found the brethren there on their knees in prayer. He told them about Anthony's story about St. Thomas Island, and then at their big monthly service, Zinzendorf once again related the situation to the community. 
Now check this out. Some of the young Moravians had been preparing for three years studying medicine, geography, and languages in their spare time, preparing to go on a mission. Now Zinzendorf comes and tells them of the horrible slavery on this island and the story of this man, uh, Ulrich. Before, uh, this is, now this is before the time of missionary schools. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure the Catholics had some sort of training ground like to be a Jesuit and so on, but like other than that, there aren't missionary schools you can go to. There's not like some place where you can go to get training on what to do or cultural sensitivity or learning the language of the natives or something like that. This is really interesting. Leonard Dober immediately felt the call to go. That's Leonard on the left there. He immediately felt the call to go, but wasn't sure if he should listen to it. He said, well, let's just think about this. So that night he had a dream, and he heard a voice urging him to go and preach to the captives, but wasn't sure if it was his own excited voice or God's. And so sometime later, he's talking to his friend Tobias. They're walking along, and he's shocked to hear that Tobias had had the same dream as Dober had had. So they wrote to Zinzendorf, and they asked if they could go to St. Thomas. During the next big meeting, Zinzendorf read the letter to the congregation. He didn't mention the names of uh, Dober or Tobias, but he, he read the letter out that they wanted to go to St. Thomas. And the congregation was totally critical and cold. And they're like, even the powerful Protestant churches haven't crossed the sea for the gospel. What, what are we going to do? We're this little tiny community, Hernhut. Who's ever heard of us living on Zinzendorf's estates? trying to escape persecution. This is just a reckless, youthful bid for fame. That's all this is. These young guys, they, 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 the glory of travel, you know, we know how youth are. Then Ulrich himself, the ex-slave, came to the community and started to explain to them how horrible slavery was and what it was like there on St. Thomas. And so he went on to mention that no one could even go to St. Thomas unless they were first a slave. So a year passed. A whole year, 365 days, passes with this issue hanging in the air. And Dober is unwavering and told the leaders that he would become a slave so that he could reach the slaves. <laughs> Imagine that. I will become a slave so I can reach the slaves. They had another meeting. This time they cast lots. Classic way to figure out what to do, right? And the lot for Dober said, let the lad go for the Lord is with him. So there's like no more excuse now. They're like, we're going we're gonna to let this guy go. So in 1732, he chose David Nitschman, who is the man on the right here, as his traveling companion and set off for Copenhagen to petition the government for passage because you just don't go to a Danish colony. You get the government's approval first. As these two trudged away with 30 shillings and all their possessions on a bundle on their backs, they had no idea they were about to ignite the whole modern missionary movement. They just thought they had a need, they had heard about, and they were going to go. And so they got to Copenhagen, and they were laughed at. Everybody thought they were a joke. And the government told them, so they, they, the government asked, well, so what are you going to do? They're like, well, we're going to be slaves. The government's like, you're white. You mean you're going to be a slave? You can't, no, you're not going to be a slave. So they're like, well, all right, we'll work as carpenters, and we'll, we'll produce things, and, th and that's what we'll do when we get there. Uh, eventually, the queen gets impressed by this group, 
And uh, she made a way for them to board a boat and go. And so they began missionary work, and they reached out to many of the slaves. And they continued right through the time of emancipation when slaves got their freedom and everything else. The Moravia missions are there on the islands preaching. They teach them about God and how to read and write. And in less than a century, the pietist Moravians sent 300 missionaries throughout the world and baptized some 3,000 converts. This is just one little community church that just gets it in their head, hey, we're, we need to go send out missionaries. They founded Bethlehem, Pennsylvania in the United States, where my wife went to college at Moravia, the university. They were the ones on the boat that John Wesley saw. When John Wesley was on this boat on his way to Georgia, to the colonies, there was the storm, and everybody was freaking out, except for this one group of Christians that were sitting there singing through the Psalms calmly. They, they were Moravians. They're the ones that got Wesley started on his questioning his conversion, saying, well, am I really a Christian? I mean, look at these people. There are 825,000 of these Moravians today, by the way, and they're worldwide. In fact, their largest concentration is in Tanzania, Africa. But they're, they're throughout the world. But their motto is, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, love. Isn't that a cool motto? I mean, compared to what we've just seen, you know, it's a really different spirit, isn't it? Sometime after that, we have William Carey, who is typically called the father of modern missions. Even though the Moravians had gone first, not a lot of people knew about what they were doing because they were such a small community. William Carey wrote a book in 1792 called An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. Great title. He's a Baptist. I believe he's a Baptist. Yeah, he's a particular Baptist, which means he's, he believes in John Calvin's idea of predestination. So the way this works is God chooses everyone who's going to be saved in eternity past. So can you imagine that that might make a lot of people question, like, so why are we going to go preach to the heathens? If they're, if they're chosen by God, they're going to get saved, brother. And if they're not, then what are we going to preach to them for? They're not chosen. And so he's, he's fighting against that, and, he, and this is one of the reasons why he writes this book. He says, It is inconsistent for ministers to please themselves with thoughts of a numerous auditory, cordial friends, a civilized country, legal protection, affluence, splendor, or even a competency. The flights and hatred of men and even pretended friends, gloomy prisons and tortures, the society of barbarians of uncouth speech, Miserable accommodations in wretched wilderness, hunger and thirst, nakedness, weariness, and painfulness, hard work, and but little worldly encouragement should rather be the objects of their expectation. Intense, huh? Thus the apostles acted in the primitive times and endured hardness as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. And though we living in a civilized country where Christianity is protected by law are not called to suffer these things while we continue here, Yet I question whether all are justified in staying here, while so many are perishing without means of grace in other lands. This book has a huge impact. A huge impact. He used the latest ethnographic and geographic data to map out and count the number of people who had not heard the gospel. And he appeals to people to go 
as missions, and he wants to go himself. And so he goes to India with his wife, and it's, it's kind of a long, crazy story. He goes with his wife and a doctor. The doctor ends up stealing the money and running away. His wife and he lose a child. She loses her mind. He neglects the family. That's the downside of it. The upside of it is he translates the New Testament into 24 of India's native languages, and he brings the gospel to a place and opens up a beachhead for Christian missionaries to come. The point I get from looking at William Carey is you can't neglect your family. If, if, if your kids are dying and your wife loses your mind, you know, it might be time to stay home and, and focus and, and help the family situation. People said they visited his house and his house was just chaos and his children were totally uneducated. Meanwhile, he's out translating the Bible into these Indian languages. So he's an unbalanced person, but at the same time to be commended for his heart you know, and his purpose and he did accomplish some things there. After his death, missionaries start going all over the world. In 1799, the Church Missionary Society was founded in England and is active all over the world, including the Middle East. In 1812, the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions gets started. So we have missionary work now in England and in America. In 1865, Hudson Taylor founded the China Inland Mission, about which we've already heard from Matt in Asian Christianity. He and uh, Maria Taylor went to China in 1860. They wore Chinese clothing. They spoke Chinese at home. And this offended other missionaries, but it was very successful <laughs> in getting the uh, local people to listen to them. In 1886, Arthur Tappan Pearson, somebody I'd never heard of before, but Arthur Tappan Pearson uh, started the student volunteer movement. This was inspired by Hudson Taylor. Check this, this movement out. It, it was a movement to send out missionaries, this is in the late 1800s, to areas where there was tropical disease commonly happening. When they left, they packed their belongings in a coffin because 80% of them died within two years. imagine that? Your suitcase is your coffin? And they go. They go. Hundreds and hundreds of them go. And they go to these nasty tropical areas at great personal risk, and they preach. In 1910, the Edinburgh Missionary Conference happens where they reviewed the state of evangelism. They talk about Bible translation, church support, training for indigenous leadership. And then in 1942, we get the Wycliffe Bible Translators. Wycliffe is the other man I, I started our whole class with, who was an early English man who tried to bring the Bible into English before the printing press even, actually died of natural causes, but then was later dug up and burned. His bones were burned by the, uh, the church in England because he was considered a heretic. But anyhow, I guess they, since he was the, one of the first ones to bring the Bible into English, they named this missionary organization after him in 1942. This was founded by William Cameron Townsend. And today, there are over 100 member organizations in over 60 countries translating the Bible into native languages. This organization, the Wycliffe, what is it known today as Wycliffe Global Alliance, has done more than 700 scripture translations. So to give you the stats, there are 6,900 plus languages spoken in the world. 
Out of those, 1,294 have the whole New Testament. 513 languages have the whole Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. So there's a lot of work to be done still. Okay, we don't want to think like, oh, it's all being taken. Well, there's still a lot of work to be done, and they are doing it. I think they have something like over 2,000 uh, translation projects in progress right now. Of course, there are many others included in the missionary movement that happened starting in the 1800s and going to today, like Lottie Moon, Amy Carmichael, and C.T. Studd, and many others, but we only have so much time. So let's go back to America, to the Second Great Awakening, which happened between the years 1790 and 1840. What happened in America was the discovery of something called camp meetings, made in America, where you take people away to a campsite and you have a revival. And so this is something that happens, the most notable one is in 1801, there's the Cane Ridge Revival in Kentucky from August 6th to 12th. It's the largest and most famous camp meeting, and Barton Stone is the preacher. More on him later. But we're talking about frontier types, pioneers, uh, Methodists, Presbyterians, Baptists, people from all different kinds of groups, common folks of all different kinds of trades. They all come out into the woods to this camp meeting. And during the preaching of Barton Stone, people start falling to the ground during the sermon, begging for God's grace. Others lurched and laughed hysterically. Hundreds of people dropped to their knees and prayed for God's mercy. And so revival meetings started out and they, they continued for 30 years, or more than 30 years. And the revivals were a reaction against skepticism, against deism, against this rationalization of Christianity, this total emphasis on conversion and taking God seriously and taking the Bible seriously. Charles Finney was one of these preachers, and he lived from 1792 to 1875. He was a revival preacher who favored social reforms for women and African Americans. Uh, he, was a, he believed in reason-centered optimism, and he pressured people not to leave a meeting until they were sure of salvation. So we can thank him for that tactic. Nobody leaves here tonight until you're sure. I don't care if we have to stay here all night long. We're not leaving here. That's Charles Finney. Okay, Church of Christ. Barton Stone in 1804 left the Presbyterian Church. He had been a preacher, and he came to challenge the Westminster Confession. He disagreed with it. He is the one that led this first camp meeting at, called Cane Ridge in 1801. He determined that the Bible alone should be the guide, and in 1807 he started Believer's Baptism, baptizing adults. His group partnered up with Alexander Campbell, who in 1811 founded a congregation and said that the only way to overcome denominationalism, all these groups that are, keep splitting apart from each other, is to base everything on the New Testament. To base Christianity on the New Testament, that's where we'll find our unity. So in 1832, Stone's group and Campbell's group merged together, and they are what we call restorationists. A restorationist is somebody who thinks the best way to figure out how to do Christianity is to peel back all the layers, not of just the last 500 years, but of the last 2,000 years, go straight to the Bible, and, and, and try to live out the first century Christianity today. 
That's what a restorationist is. They believed in plural leadership, weekly communion. Every Sunday they would have communion. The autonomy of local congregations, so you don't have a strong oversight. Unity of all believers and submission to the Bible as a sole authority in religious matters. However, they do end up splitting a few times, the Church of Christ. They disagree over a missionary society in 1849. Why? Well, there's no missionary society in the New Testament, so everything is based on the New Testament. Should we really have a missionary society? Should we divert all our funds to that? In 1859, they disagree over musical instruments. There are no musical instruments mentioned in the New Testament. Forget about Psalm 150. That's Old Testament. New Testament, no musical instruments, a cappella only. To this day, Church of Christ, you will not find an organ, you will not find a guitar. By the way, they have over 5 million people today in the Church of Christ and 42,000 congregations. Barton Stone's revival meetings start a movement in America. And this movement changes under the leadership of William Miller into what's called the Millerite movement. It has nothing to do with the beer, I think. I don't think it does, at least. Miller is the father of Adventism. Just a word about Adventism. That's a belief in the advent of Christ. Advent is the coming. So, specifically, not his first coming, everybody agreed on that, but the second coming of Christ. So the Adventist movement is a movement of Christians who are reading their Bibles, and it's interesting because it happens... It happens before Albert Schweitzer in 1906 discovers that Jesus was all about the kingdom of God. These guys are in America out in the frontiers, out in these camp meetings, reading the Bible. They figure it out on their own. And there's this whole Adventist movement in America, totally independent of the uh, highbrow scholars. But William Miller is instrumental in this. He studies the prophecies. Of, there's a whole story about his life I'm not going to get into. But he studies the prophecies from Daniel, and he sets a date. Now, just for the record, so far, everyone who set a date has been wrong. <laughs> Let us not set dates. But William Miller set a date. In 1822, he predicted Christ would come by 1843. He submitted 16 articles to the Vermont Telegraph, a Baptist paper, and he was overwhelmed with responses. He wrote a little 64-page book, and from the year 1840 onwards... His little movement, oh, by the way, he's, he, uh, he's preaching in New York. He's uh, upstate New York, Hampton, which is east of Lake George on the Vermont border. Just threw that in there. But he, his movement goes huge. Between 50,000 and 100,000 people believed his prediction for Christ's return. And so he set the date sometime between March 21st, 1843, and March 21st, 1844. Well... March 21st, 1844 came and went, and Jesus did not come back, but people kept believing. So he changed it to April 18th, 1844, which also passed without anything. And then at a camp meeting, a man named Samuel Snow presented the date October 22nd, 1844. Last chance, Jesus is coming back. We got it all right now. And that's the date that sticks and that's the date that everyone focuses on, even though Miller had already struck out, I guess. And, but now this is Snow's date, which leads to what's called the Great Disappointment. <laughs> of October 22, 1844, 
where people are bewildered, disillusioned, probably a lot of them sold their possessions to pay for all these pamphlets that are being printed, and they are at a loss at what to do. So many people went back to the old denominations that they came from in the first place, but a lot of people stuck around. They're like, no, you know, I think maybe, maybe just the date thing was wrong. Maybe, we just, maybe he is coming. He's really coming. We're not just going to die and go to heaven. Jesus is coming back, right? He's going to do something. So they have a conference in 1845 in, of all places, Albany, New York, at which 61 delegates attended. And the Millerites wanted to determine the future of the movement. After this meeting, they called themselves Adventists, or Second Adventists. And we have different groups emerging, like the Evangelical Adventists, the Life and Advent Union, Advent Christian Church, and of course, the Seventh-day Adventists. So I'm just going to cruise through a few of these Adventist groups, uh, because a couple of them are actually very, um, they're, they're almost like cousins of us, uh, maybe without knowing it. But... Um, the Advent Christian Church is the first one I want to mention. Formed in 1861, it grew rapidly, but then it declined in the 20th century. They believe in conditional immortality. So this is essentially true for all Adventists, unless I say otherwise, is that they believe in the second coming of Christ to bring the kingdom of God to the earth when the saints will be resurrected. Adventists do not believe, or at least most of them don't believe, in heaven or hell at death. They believe that you are asleep when you die until the resurrection. Now, some of them believe in what's called soul sleep. Some believe in what's called soul death. But they all agree that you're not awake okay, when you're dead. And um, the Advent Christian Church also has some groups among them that did, also, that did not believe in the Trinity. Uh, in 2002, the Advent Christian Church had 302 churches with 25,000 members. Again, these numbers are subject to change, of course. That was 12 years ago. Then we come to the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which is, well, Ellen G. White is not actually their founder, but she, she comes to be one of their most important leaders. Kind of funny pictures over here. But uh, she founded, we could, we could almost say she founded the Seventh-day Adventist in 1863. But what she did was she gave Miller's predictions a spiritual interpretation. People started regarding Ellen as a prophet, and Ellen G. White, and she claimed 2,000 visions from the year 1844 onwards. Now, the Seventh-day Adventists are called Seventh-day because they believe in keeping the seventh day, which is the Sabbath. It's not Sunday, it's Saturday. So they believe in food laws, which is why we get certain people like J.H. Kellogg and Sylvester Graham coming out with their food companies so that Americans would have foods that would qualify according to the biblical laws of kosher food. So the Seventh-day Adventists, they believe in keeping the law of Moses. They're a large global denomination, and today they have, uh, well, in 2011, they had over 17 million members, not counting children. There is a, a small offshoot of disfellowship members who started the Davidian Seventh-day Adventist Association, and the Branch Davidians were split off from this other group who were led by David Koresh, who perished in 1993 in the Waco siege. Just for your information. The next group, 
I'm not saying they have anything to do with the Seventh Day Adventists, but it was you know down the stream a little bit. Um, the next group are the or is the Christadelphians. The Christadelphians. This is John Thomas. Um, he founded the Christadelphians in 1844. Christadelphians means brothers of Christ, which should kind of give us a clue about what they believe. They don't think Jesus is God. They think Jesus is our brother. They're Unitarian, biblical Unitarian, very conservative. They believe in mortal emergence, closed communion, and non-devil. Mortal emergence is the idea that on the resurrection, you're not immortalized. You still have to live a certain way for a certain time until finally you get immortality. Closed communion means unless you are a member of their church, you're not allowed to take communion. And non-devil means that they believe in the devil, but the devil is you. It's your own sinful inclinations. It's not an external being. So that's why I just call it non-devil. Uh, the book The Protesters was written by Alan Iyer, is Christadelphian, a book I referred to earlier. There are about 60,000 uh, Christadelphians today in 120 countries worldwide. They're based in England and Australia, but they're very active in missionary work in Eastern Europe, the Middle East, Africa, and Asia. Uh, I've got a Christadelphian friend in Taiwan I talk to sometimes on email. I mean, they're, they're very, very missionary-minded people. They were there in Iraq during the war and everything else as missionaries. The Church of God's Seventh Day is the next group I want to mention. Uh, this is founded in 1863. In 1999, they had 185 churches with 11,000 members. They split from Ellen White's group in 1858, and then they split again, and it was an offshoot of this other group that became the Worldwide Church of God, a group I'm going to talk about next week. Okay, so I'm just going to briefly mention that right now before moving on to talk about the Church of God General Conference. In the great disappointment of October 22nd, people still believed that the Second Coming was going to happen and establish a kingdom. And Joseph Marsh was one of, these, one of these leaders who ministered in Rochester, New York. And he was an editor of the Millerite Papers, and he was part of the Millerite movement, but then he stopped associating with, the, with Miller after the Albany Conference in 1845. Joseph Marsh believed in the second coming of Christ to establish a kingdom on the earth during the millennium. He believed in the restitution of all things, the establishment of the throne of David, the, that the Jews would be sent forth to all nations as missionaries. He would bring judgment on the unjust, reward to the righteous. He was a biblical Unitarian. He was a conditionalist, and he believed that the name of the group should be called the Church of God based on his study of the Bible. Just a few things that Joseph Marsh believed. His group got called the Age to Come Adventists, and it differed from others because of their belief that the Jews would actually return to their land. So now this is in the 1800s, so nobody could see that one coming. But he was actually laughed at for believing that the Jews would ever come back to their land and re reform uh, ancient Israel. In 1841, he wrote some articles about uh, calling the name the Church of God, and he published in The Voice of Truth, The Advent Harbinger, The Bible Expositor. He wrote articles about abolition, slavery, you know, abolition for slavery, women leaders in church, and temperance. And then we have Benjamin Wilson, in 18, born in 1817, died in 1900. He had contact with Marsh as well as John Thomas. In fact, all these guys knew each other. Whether we're talking about the Seventh-day Adventists, the Church of God, the Christadelphians, or the group that later became the Jehovah's Witnesses, they all grew up in the same 
kind of revival Adventist milieu where they're thinking about the second coming of Christ, studying the Bible, figuring it out, biblical prophecy, and so on. Uh, Benjamin Wilson, uh, in 1864, put out the emphatic diaglot, which is a interlinear. It's the first Greek-English interlinear printed in America. After Marsh's death in the 1860s, the Wilsons come to take prominence in this movement, um, and they have close connections, like I said, with the Christadelphians, with the Advent Christians, and with the Church of Christ. The Church of God, what did I call it here? General Conference. They're sometimes called the Church of God Abrahamic Faith, so their official name is General Conference. But uh, they have national conference attempts in 1869 and in 1888 in Philadelphia. It doesn't work. People don't want to support the formation of a new denomination. In 1889 in Chicago, they are able to, to start a, an official organization, but it only lasts three years until it's disbanded because of financial support. In 1910, they try again. And then finally, in 1921, they establish themselves as a denomination. And that's their official founding date, 1921. Uh, they stress the importance of local congregations to govern themselves and that the denomination should support the churches rather than tell the churches what to do. Um, I have their distinctives or statement of beliefs here, which you might find interesting. This is taken from their publication, Restitution Herald. The oneness of God, these are their beliefs, that the Holy Spirit is God's power, that Jesus Christ is God's only begotten Son and is our mediator, that the Bible is the inspired word of God, the mortality of man, the near return of Christ and life only through him, the literal resurrection of the dead, the immortalization of those in Christ, the destruction of the wicked. Oh, I, I forgot to mention that. Adventists don't believe in eternal torment. They believe that hell annihilates people. I mean, it is punishment, but it annihilates people. And so the Church of God, coming out of the Adventist movement, also agrees that the wicked are actually destroyed, not tormented forever. The final restoration of Israel as the kingdom of God under the kingship of Christ, the church to be joint heirs with Christ, and Israel to be made head of, over Gentile nations, the restitution of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. It also firmly advocates repentance and immersion in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and a consecrated life as essential to salvation. So that's their statement of beliefs, at least in... The 21st century. They have 147 congregations in Africa. I'm not sure how many in America. There are several thousand of them. They're active in Russia, India, Pakistan, Canada, Haiti, Mexico, Peru, Uruguay, Korea, and the United States. And they run a Bible college in Atlanta called the Atlanta Bible College. I have a chart here of all the Adventist groups, but it's too small for you to see. So I'm just going to uh, describe to you what it says. What it says is that on the far left, they're all Millerites. This is followers of William Miller. And they split into three groups. You have the Seventh-day Adventists, the First-day Adventists, and the Spiritualizer Adventists. The Spiritualizer Adventists are the ones on the bottom and this dotted line that stop existing. And then these other groups split further into the Advent Christians, uh, the Life and Advent Union, and the Age to Come Adventist, which becomes the Church of God of the Abrahamic Faith or the Church of God General Conference. From several of these Adventist groups, these gray dotted lines, 
represent followers that joined Charles Taze Russell's Bible students. Charles Taze Russell's Bible students is what becomes the Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay? It comes from these Adventist groups. Advent Christians, Life in Advent Union, and Age to Come Adventists are the ones that sort of provide the people to start. He found Zion's Watchtower Tract Society in 1884. He has close connections with the Millerite movement. He rejected the Trinity, and he embraced the nearness of the end. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses are famous, famous for predicting that Jesus would come back in 1914, which was World War I. When he didn't physically come back, they said he had come back invisibly and chosen their organization, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, as the one true organization through which he would work in, this, in these last days. In 1909, uh, they moved to Brooklyn, and J.F. Rutherford, Rutherford eventually took over the movement. In 1931, they renamed to Jehovah's Witnesses, and in 2008, they had 7 million members around the world. Uh, some of their distinctives include no blood transfusions, only true organization. All other churches are wrong. They are the only true church. They're pacifists, they're Unitarians, but they believe in pre-existence, and they have a translation of the Bible called the New World Bible Translation. I know I did the Jehovah's Witnesses in like 30 seconds, but, you know... <laughs> Ask me about it later if you want to know more. Or uh, you can just look them up online as well. On to the Mormons. Joseph Smith. He lived from 1805 to 1844. That tells me that he didn't live too long, huh? 1805 to 1844. The Mormonism, also called Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, abbreviated a lot of times to LDS, is a made-in-America religion. It's one of the few that can say, this was founded in America, did not exist anywhere else, it's, it started here. Uh, it was optimistic, pragmatic, activist, adventuring. It, it, it was well characterized by the age in which it emerged. Joseph Smith saw visions telling him to dig up golden tablets with the story of the lost ten tribes who had migrated, what he said, to America. So the lost ten tribes of uh, Israel got in a boat during the time of Jeremiah or before that and came to America. And so he claimed that the Indians, the Native Americans, were really Jews, or not Jews, but Israelites from those northern ten tribes, which has been since disproved by genetic testing, which we can do today. But that doesn't seem to shake the, the faith here. Uh, in 1830, he came out with the Book of Mormon, in 1835, he came out with a book called The Doctrine and the Covenants. And in 1851, some other people produced a, the book called The Pearl of Great Price, which included a lot of Joseph Smith's writings. So you have for a Mormon the Old Testament, the New Testament, right, which together we call the Bible. And then you also have the Book of Mormon, The Pearl of Great Price, and The Doctrine and the Covenants. These are all for them Bible. In fact, they print it in one book called the Bible. Or they also can print it separately. Obviously, the Book of Mormon can be printed by itself or with these others. But they're all considered part of the canon of Scripture, the books officially recognized as inspired by God. He started preaching in the burned-over district of New York. Did you know that western New York was called the burned-over district because so many revival preachers had gone through there back and forth until they felt there were no converts left to be made? 
And so that's where Joseph Smith starts preaching Mormonism out in uh, the area of Rochester. He's fiercely opposed by the surrounding society because he believes in polygamy. He believes in um, a cooperative approach to land acquisition, so a bunch of people teaming up to buy land. He believed in exclusive Mormon settlements, and he didn't want to interact with Gentiles, non-Mormons. So he has a very exclusivistic mentality. So he migrates westward, and he's eventually killed by a mob in Nauvoo, Illinois, at which point Brigham Young takes over after Smith, and he establishes a center for Mormonism in 1847 in Salt Lake City, Utah. As the United States was continuing to spread west, the United States would not allow Utah to join because of the polygamy. So in 1890, they banned polygamy so that they could join the United States. And in 1896, the United States allowed Utah in. Today, there are more than 15 million Mormons and, uh, around the world. And in America, they make up about 2% of the population. They're fiercely evangelistic, and every male is encouraged to go for two years for a missionary trip and they, they pay for that trip themselves. They start saving at a young age, and they pay for the trip themselves. Women are encouraged to get married at a young age. If they don't get married by some, I don't know what year, sometime in their 20s, then they're allowed to go on the missionary trip as well. So it's, 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 it's more focused on the men, but women are also allowed to go for that. So that's... Uh, a thumbnail sketch of Mormonism. There's a lot more to it, a lot more to the story of uh, Joseph Smith and um, how we started it. But uh, that's it for now. Thanks for tuning in. Next week will be our last week together, and we'll look at 20th century Christianity. If you are interested in more about the Church of God General Conference, I had the pleasure of interviewing Seth Ross, the current executive director, in interview 16. Church of God Vision with Seth Ross. So check that out if you're interested in them. If you'd like to comment on this episode, please visit restitutio.org and find Podcast 130, Missionaries, Adventists, and Mormons, and leave us some feedback there. Also, if you haven't already, why not give us a review in iTunes so that other people can find this show. Thanks so much for everyone who's already done that, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.